So we um, use you version. There are some notes there. You can you can take uh, uh, jump into that and um, be able to follow along. Do you guys mind bringing the lights up a little bit too? Um, there's a lot tonight. Okay. <laughs> um, usually I kind of want to take my time and work through some things, but uh, I'm going to be moving fast, hopefully. Okay. And if I start uh, lulling, you guys need to go like this, okay? Because there's a lot. Um, and I don't typically like to work like that, but I was telling Ben and Hannah both this week, I'm like, I have like three teachings that I want to do in one, okay? So we'll see how this goes. Um, we've been working through these miracles of Jesus um, that John writes about um, throughout and, you know, we're drawn near the end of this series. We only have tonight, and then next week is the end, the full end of the Miracles series. Um, and uh, we're coming to the, really the climax of what is, is happening here uh, with, with what John has, has written in his gospel. And I, I know I've talked about this a few times um, already lately, and some of you have heard this several times over, but, but I want to um, have a good grasp on what John... I want to kind of roll back and talk about um, just the, the gospel. Um, gospel, uh, anybody know what just the word gospel means? The good news, right? Like, good news. Gospel is good news. And in the, in the time and the place of the writing of the New Testament, when we talk about the gospel, um, that would not have been like a foreign word to people. Uh, the idea of the gospel would have been something that the people, like in the Roman Empire, would have heard about. Uh, if any time that, like, someone had, had maybe come in and um, conquered an area, or, like, maybe a new Caesar had come and... Um, trying to kill the buzz here, but it's not working. Um, maybe a new Caesar had come into power. There would be uh, declarations that would go out throughout the the kingdom, and they would be declaring the good news of the new Caesar or the new king or, or whatever this be, that um, basically uh, this new person's in power. These are the expectations that we have, but it's going to be awesome because you're going to get things like running water, and you're going to get things like food, and you're going to get protection of the Roman Empire. That's the gospel that was being proclaimed when these new Caesars would come into power. So it's not a, a, a new thing for these writers that we see like John to be coming and saying, hey, I've got something to proclaim here. There's news. There's, there's a new ruler. Um, John and the other gospel writers in our Bibles, in our New Testament, are sharing the good news in a very similar way to what these people would have seen before. Um, but whereas this was talking about the Caesar and the Roman Empire, what these writers are talking about is something far bigger it's something eternal. It's something that is global and universal. Um, that they're sharing, what they're sharing is that there, there's a new king and there's a new kingdom and things are going to change because of what this king has done. Um, and it's far larger than the empire. It's far larger than our country. It's far larger than the world. This gospel is about bringing humanity back to God. So John's been framing up this gospel, and this is the thing we've talked about several times over, is as you go through the book of John, he's framed it up in, in a way to present, like, this is who Jesus is and what he's done. 
We're talking about all these miracles, and over and over and over again, we see what John is, is pointing at with Jesus is like, like his authority over all things, his power, like who he is as the Son of God, as the Messiah. Um, and we see that also through I am statements. You can go back and read through John and look at those things. We didn't do that in this series. But, but he has a very clear purpose to show who Jesus is so that we would believe. And we actually get to read that scripture tonight in John 20 where we're at. So you can turn to John 20 if you want. We're going to be there in just a second. Um, with the miracle about Lazarus, if you were here last week or maybe watched the, the video online or something, if you couldn't make it, Lazarus was raised from the dead. And with that miracle that we saw last week, we saw Jesus having the power even over death. This man who had been in the grave for four days, Jesus raises to life and brings him back. Um, but what happens when the person wielding that life-giving power of God ends up dying on a cross and going to the grave? Where are we at when that happens? Tonight's miracle, like I said, is in John 20. It's after the death of Jesus on the cross. Um, and if the, the raising of Lazarus was like the appetizer about what's to come, this is the main dish, all right? This is what we've been waiting for. This is what the climax of God's story. Um, so it's a lot, John 20, but we're going to read this all. Um, so let's jump in. It says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already removed from the tomb. So she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They've taken the Lord from the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple left, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple, this is actually John talking about himself, the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And he stooped to look in, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there. However, he did not go in. But then Simon Peter also came following him, and he, he entered the tomb, as Peter does, bursting in. Um, he enters the tomb, and he looks at the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying where the linen wrappings, but folded up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had come first to the tomb also entered then, and he saw and believed. For they did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own tomb, or to their own homes. Um, but Mary was standing outside the tomb, weeping. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've put him. When she said this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, yet she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Thinking that he was the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you put him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But, I, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were together due of fear of the Jews, 
Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. Uh, you remember that he, in the crucifixion, he's, he has been nailed and then the, the piercing of the side. So he shows that to them. The disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be to you. Just as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve, who was called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I'm not going to believe. Eight days later, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Place your finger here, see my hands, and take your hand and put it into my side, and don't continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Because you've seen me, have you now believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. So then, and this is that, that kind of like tie-up thing that we keep pointing back to. So then, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to jump into this, okay? Um, God, we love you. Jesus, thank you for your resurrection, and thank you for what that means for us, for the world, for your church. Thank you for your power and your love and your compassion and mercy and grace and all these things that lead to the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. Um, help us to trust you. Help us to obey you. Help us to, to believe and to live our lives out in honor of you. I, I just pray tonight can be strengthening to us. Um, but most of all, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that you are speaking um, in all of this, that you're speaking louder than me, um, and you're, you're meeting us where we are um, to bring us closer to you. So help us in our belief. Help us in our faith. Help us to grow. And we love you, Christ. Amen. All right, this miracle is the miracle of miracles here, and it's, it's the final stroke against death that we see Jesus make. Um, sin was defeated as Jesus sacrifices himself as this perfect lamb on the cross, and we're given the ability to be reconciled to God the Father through that. Like, that's something that Jesus brings about on the cross. It's the defeat of sin and shame. Um, Isaiah, you know, in a, maybe a familiar verse, says way back before this ever happened that he was pierced for our transgressions and he was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that brought him peace, brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. So that's like what we're seeing on the cross, that, that Jesus is bringing about peace to us through the punishment on the cross, through his sacrifice on the cross. Um, and the big thing here is that death loses, death loses in the rising of Jesus from the dead. Like, it loses, which is kind of weird to think about, but... 
that's what happens in this. Um, I, I, just, I just finished reading the, the Tolkien's Return of the King to my kids because that's the kind of person I am. And um, uh, there's like many pieces of his writings that like, that hit me hard uh, in the midst of that. But, but one of these that we just read, I, I just was like thinking about as I was studying for this. And um, there's this point where this hobbit Sam had, had traveled and the wizard Gandalf was thought dead. And he, you know, we see in the book, like Gandalf's been doing all this stuff, but like Sam the whole time is like, has thought he's been dead for months. And he meets him again. And he says this, he's like, Gandalf, I thought that you were dead. But then I, I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. Now, Tolkien was a, was a follower of Jesus or is a follower of Jesus. Um, um, but he sums up the feeling, you know, in this, like I, I feel like he's looking back at like the resurrection of Christ as he's seeing this and summing up the feeling of what Jesus has done. This resurrection of Jesus putting to death, death, making these sad things come untrue and bringing about life for his people. He gives us the ability to have real life. Um, in Ephesians 2, we saw several Sundays back, if you're, if you're coming on Sundays and being a part of that, um, Paul talking to the Ephesians about this whole thing. He's like, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And this happens through the death and through the resurrection of Jesus. And if we look all the way back at Genesis 3 to the beginning, not, not the fully the beginning, but a little bit in when the beginning of our troubles begin, right? Beginning of, yeah. Um, there's two things that happen with that initial sin um, as, as Adam and Eve sin against God and choose themselves over him. Um, one is this estrangement from God that takes place, right? There's a broken relationship that happens between humankind and God. But the other thing we see in that curse is that death appears, right? But Jesus, hanging on the tree, kills death and kills sin and its consequences. He brings us back. There's no longer estrangement. There's ability to be reconciled to God and there's also the ability to have this life in God through him. And it's a beautiful thing. The death and resurrection of Jesus were the final strokes against sin and death, meaning that we can now have life together with God forever. And the good news is that the reconciliation of God and life in him is a gift that he offers freely. He, just, he offers that to us. Come to me, all who are weak, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, those are the implications, but I want to take a minute to jump to 1 Corinthians 15 and maybe take a little bit different tact at this idea of the resurrection and talk about the witness of the resurrection. Now, I have a bit of, I have a bit of, I have a lot of pessimism in my <laughs> makeup. Um, anybody else like that? Pessimists? Pessimists unite, right? In separate places, 
eyeing each other warily, right? Um, like that pessimism, but, but like there's a skeptic nature I have a little bit. And what's, as a person of faith who deals with that, um, something that's very important to me is to come back again and again and again to just like know why I believe to an extra degree. Um, and I, I wanted to kind of speak into this tonight with the resurrection because of the importance of this. Um, there's certain things I come back yearly to refresh kind of my mind and heart on. Um, and I can't get into the entirety of it tonight, but a good portion of my like convictions are rooted in outside of just like personal experience with Jesus, because that's a huge piece of that. But like they're rooted in clues like the, um, like the, the witness of like nature, um, the testimony of the scriptures and like, uh, how those things are just like perfectly, how the scriptures are perfectly together. Um, but also this idea of the witness of the resurrection. Um, it's a really important piece of that for me and like why I believe that Jesus is who he is. Um, and, you know, we're talking about that tonight. So I wanted to speak into this looking at 1 Corinthians 15. So again, you can turn there because we're going to be in a little bit of that tonight. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, I'm kind of jumping a little bit. I'm looking, starting in verse 3 going through 8, and then I'm going to jump to 12 and, and through 19 just to kind of uh, focus a little bit. But Paul says this. This is Paul writing about the resurrection of Jesus. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So he died, and he was buried, was put in the tomb, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that... Um, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, um, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, meaning they're still alive. But some have fallen asleep, meaning they've died. Um, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, if Christ is preached, jumping to 12, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And this is a key part, verse 13. But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised doing a logic argument here, okay? Don't get lost in all this. Um, he continues in verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And another key point here in 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. Now, this is a really strong point of argument and theology and logic from Paul in this section. But it comes down to the resurrection of Jesus being the hinge point of Christianity. The resurrection of Jesus being the hinge point of our faith in him. If there was no resurrection, then following Jesus is worthless. If there's no resurrection then Jesus was just an amazing teacher who either lied to everybody 
or was crazy and thought he was something he wasn't, if there's no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, there's no hope. Paul says that we're to be pitied above anyone if our hope in Jesus is merely for this life and the resurrection, if the resurrection didn't matter. I believe, though, when we look at the things surrounding the resurrection of Jesus, it becomes extremely convincing clue that points toward Jesus being who he says he is. Um, and when it's added to the accumulated weight of like other clues, um, I'm convinced of it. So I want to get a bit analytical tonight, maybe, and to talk about like why I believe the resurrection from that kind of standpoint, um, outside of the way I've seen Jesus work in my life. So stick with me here. I know it could get dry, so please keep it keep there. Okay. Um, there are ways that, ways that people try to hand wave the resurrection, like oh that couldn't have happened. Um, this is why it couldn't have happened and all these things. And I want to speak into a few of those tonight. Um, something I want to be real clear on is like, um, th- this is absolutely not me like mocking these doubts at all, okay? Because like there are real struggles that people have with like faith and like that's a real thing and trying to work through these things. So I just want to be clear that that's not... But it's where I've come to the, to the place of, like, I can, I can, the arguments I have against these things. Is that, is that you follow what I'm saying? Okay, I just want to be clear about, like, my motivations with this. Um, I do find these arguments lacking. Um, because faith, but faith struggles can be real, and we have to work through them. But I want to address these things. So, um, an alternate theory that gets tossed around about the resurrection is that Jesus didn't actually die. Um, that's one that's tossed around sometimes. Anyone ever heard that? Okay, see, see some nodding of head? Like, um, that he didn't actually die on the cross. Um, some people call it like the swoon theory, um, literally meaning Jesus swooned and they thought he was dead and put him in the tomb. Um, and I know some of you have heard of me talk about it before, but I want to get a little more in depth. Um, the argument is that he swooned, he looked dead, they took him off the cross, they put him in the tomb, um, where he eventually revived and then made his way out of the tomb and then was, everyone thought he resurrected. Um, in light of that theory, I want to look at some things that happened to Jesus physically prior to all of this. Um, Paul, because Paul writes in verse 3, looking at these scriptures, Jesus died for our, died, Jesus died for our sons according to the scriptures. That like, all of the Hebrew scriptures pointed to this Messiah who would die for us. Um, so looking at the medical evidence, um, I do want to give, I guess, like a warning that there's a few, like, I'm not trying to be gory, okay, but this is not pleasant. And I'm going to try to be brief with that, just so you know, but I, I do want to just let you know. Um, starting in the garden the night that he was betrayed, Luke, who was a doctor and historian, records in his 22nd chapter that Jesus, being in agony, was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Um, so medical condition, Ashley, Andy, do you guys know the name of that? No? I'm going to say a name. Hematidrosis? Does that sound right? Yeah? Okay. I could just say anything. No, uh, Hematidrosis, okay? I was trying to do a little quiz there, but it didn't work. Um, 
severe anxiety over something causes this chemical release that actually starts breaking down the capillaries. And as you sweat, blood is literally coming out of you. And that's what we see Jesus having happen. Um, So he's already losing blood in the garden. um, And it's like very sensitive. Your skin becomes very sensitive because of the things that are happening. Um, Moving farther after his arrest, there is a flogging that happens with Jesus. Um, John 19.1 says that Pilate has Jesus taken and whipped. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they dressed him in a purple robe. Over and over they went up to him and said, greetings, king of the Jews, and they they slapped him in the face. Um, Whipped is not a very good, it's not a very clear translation. Um, I'm going to read out a, a couple different books. One of them is The Case for Christ. Anyone read this? Highly recommend it. Um, you can borrow this copy if you want. Feel free. Um, here's what he's, uh, Lee Strobel is interviewing somebody talking about this, and it says this, Roman, Ro- Roman floggings were known to be terribly brutal. They usually consisted of 39 lashes, but frequently they were a lot more than that, depending on the mood of the soldier applying the blows. The soldier would use a whip of braided leather, thongs with metal balls woven into them, when the whip would strike the flesh, the balls would cause deep bruises or contusions, which would break open with further blows. And the whip had pieces of sharp bone as well, which would cut the flesh severely. The back would be so shredded that part of the spine was sometimes exposed by deep, deep cuts. The whipping would have gone all the way from the shoulders, down the back, the buttocks, the back of the legs. One physician who studied Roman beating said, as the flogging continued, the lacerations would tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce ribbons of bleeding flesh. We know that many people would die from this kind of beating even before they would be crucified. At the least, the victim would experience tremendous pain and go into shock. uh, And he goes on to talk about low blood volume. Um, I'm not going to read the rest of that, but uh, losing all this blood. Then Jesus goes to the crucifixion site who had been stretched out on the crossbar that he had been unable to carry, the scriptures say. He couldn't even carry it. He was so weak. Um, He had spikes driven through his wrists, as the Gospels account. Um, And this not only would cause more loss of blood and normal pain from the trauma, but the nail would have crushed the median nerve and caused just excruciating pain, which actually that word comes from crucifixion, out of the cross, excruciating. Um, When we talk about being in that much pain, the crucifixion, Crucifixion is what gives us that word. He would have been hoisted up, his feet similarly wounded, more blood loss, more agony. And the crucifixion in its end would be an agonizingly slow death due to asphyxiation, like not being able to breathe and not getting oxygen. Jesus would have had to push himself up on his wounded feet in order to breathe. Every breath would have been more pain, more blood loss. The whole situation would lead to major issues with the heart, eventually leading to cardiac arrest if asphyxiation didn't happen first. And it it seems that that's what happened. There's a point where Jesus realizes it's time. And he's like, Lord, into my, Father, into my, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he gives, gives up. Um, This is also, just as an aside, not even, this is all the medical stuff that people dealt with on the cross. This isn't even considering the weight of sin (laughs) that is hanging on Jesus during all this, okay? Um, 
But besides all that, at the end, the Roman soldier stabs Jesus in the side with the spear, causing this blood and water to flow out, which is consistent with the medical diagnosis of death. Um, the water and blood mean that the soldier had pierced the lung and heart of Jesus. So I come away from that, meaning I think that Jesus swooning is an impossibility. That's where I come from, okay, with realizing what he went through. Another alternate theory is that the body of Jesus was stolen by the disciples. Has anyone heard anybody talk about that before? See some head, head you actually see that in the scriptures. That's the one that the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership that killed Jesus, um, that's the one they go with. Is like, hey, we're going to tell everybody that the body was stolen. It's fine, you know, kind of deal. And it's, it, the scriptures say that that's circulated to the day of the writing of that gospel. Um, but Paul says in verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 15, he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. In this whole section about like if Jesus wasn't resurrected, none of this matters, you know, kind of thing. He talks about the resurrection having to be part of this. Um, E.F. Keevan, uh, there's a book called New Evidence that Demands a Verdict, which is a horribly dry textbook. I don't know if I recommend reading it, but it's really good for this kind of stuff if it's something you like struggle with or are interested in. Um, but he says that the empty tomb is either a divine one or a human one. You know, it's like one or the other. Either humans created this thing or God did this. And so the question is, is it possible the disciples did steal the body? This is where I come to. The tomb has this large stone rolled in front of it, and a guard was sent to stand watch, is what the account we have is. I have great idea, or great difficulty with this idea based on those facts on their own, because the disciples would not even stick around to protect Jesus in the garden when the mob of people came. Um, they didn't have enough, whatever, courage or stupidity or whatever to stand there and protect their, their rabbi, their master, their lord, you know, kind of thing. They ran. Um, they ran off into the night. So it's hard to me, to me imagine these men, after three days and seeing him die, getting brave enough to do a body heist. You know, like, honestly, like, I don't see that happening with these guys. They would have had to change immensely. The guards would have had to forget all their training and responsibility, and the disciples would have to roll this gigantic boulder out of the way without waking them up. Um, I just don't see that. Another alternate theory in regards to the missing body is that the women and the, everybody went to the wrong tomb. Anyone ever heard that? Seen head shaking there, some, some nods. That's another one that gets tossed out there. Oh, they went to the wrong place. Um, now, I, I personally can't imagine that if I lost, like, my best friend or someone I love dearly that I would forget where they were buried. I just, I can't understand that. But for the sake of argument, let's say that they did. That the women that we read about in, in this thing, they went and they somehow got lost. They went to the wrong place. And then they come back, and for the sake of argument, Peter and John run to the tomb, and they go to the wrong place too. And they are like, wow, this is crazy. And they leave. If all that was true, why didn't Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb it was that Jesus was laid in, point out, oh no, it's, it's this one. 
or Nicodemus, who helped prepare Jesus' body and had no, no stake. He was part of, the, he was part of the, the leading, the ruling council. Like, why didn't he say, no, like, that's, he's a God-fearing person. He would have done this. Why didn't they point that out? Barring that, if, they, if all these people were messed up and had forgotten this, the Romans and Jews had put a guard in front of the tomb and could have very easily just said, no, you're all wrong, this is it. They would have produced the body and laid the movement to rest. One of the strongest clues for me, though, in regards to the truth of the resurrection is the witness of people that saw Jesus alive after his death. And Paul references this in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, In verse 5, he says, He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 at one time, most of whom are alive until now. Some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Um, Case for Christ outlines more. You can read in the Gospels at the end, all these people that Jesus interacts with. There's a pair of disciples on the road to Emmaus. The disciples over and over and over again, all these people, when Jesus ascends, uh, the, uh, Mary and all these people. Um, but it's important to know here that 1 Corinthians was written within like 15 to 20 years of this whole thing happening. And Paul is not, not like being illustrative with his language when he says, all these people who saw him are still around. Like, it's a reality. Not much time has passed, and these people are still around who were there when everything went down. And the important, that is super important in light of um, what uh, Tim Keller, another book I recommend, The Reason for God, has to say about this. Um, we're, we're getting close to the end, okay? Stick with me. Try not to quote too much. Tim Keller says this, Here Paul not only speaks of the empty tomb and resurrection on the third day, showing that he's talking of a historical event, not a symbol or a metaphor, but he also lists the eyewitnesses. Paul indicates that the risen Jesus not only appeared to individuals and small groups, but he also appeared to 500 people at once, most of whom were still alive at the time of his writing and could actually be consulted for corroboration. Paul's letter was to a church, and therefore it was a public document written to be read aloud. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to the eyewitnesses if they wished. He goes on to say, Paul's letters show that Christians proclaimed Jesus' bodily resurrection from the very beginning. That meant the tomb must have been empty. No one in Jerusalem would have believed the preaching for a minute if the tomb was not empty. Skeptics could have easily produced Jesus' corpse. Also, Paul could not be telling people in a public document that there were scores of eyewitnesses alive if there were not. We can't permit ourselves the luxury of thinking that the resurrection accounts were only fabricated years later. Whatever else happened, the tomb of Jesus must have really been empty and hundreds of witnesses must have claimed that they saw him bodily raised. Resurrection was not a private event. Um, It was an event that could have been refuted when the accounts were written if there had not been eyewitnesses to it. And it, it did not happen in a vacuum, which I think a lot of times you look at scriptures in that way, like, oh, this was that, like way off then, but these people were real. They were eyewitnesses, and they give great weight to the testimony of the resurrection. And the absolute strongest clue for me when it comes to the resurrection, which I'm going to ta- actually talk about the least, is this. The disciples died for this. Like, they, they died 
for the story that this person had risen from the dead and brought about life with God. All of the disciples except John were killed for their faith in Jesus. They went to their deaths convinced that Jesus had risen from the dead. If it had been some ruse, or if they thought they were mistaken, their resolve would not have taken them that far. I truly believe that. You don't die for a lie in that way. The horribly like a lot of these people did. They would not have done that. Blaise Pascal said once, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. And I believe that, true too. I believe that desperately with these people, that there's, there's proof and evidence in that. One more quote here from, from uh, Tim Keller. It's not enough for the skeptic then to simply dismiss the Christian teaching about the resurrection of Jesus by saying it just couldn't have happened. He or she must face and answer all these historical questions. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power? No other band of messianic followers of that era concluded that their leader was raised from the dead. Why did this group do so? No group of Jews ever worshipped a human being as God. What led them to it? Jews did not believe in divine men or individual resurrections. What changed their worldview virtually overnight? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for their belief? The, the resurrection changes everything. Just like I talked about earlier, if you, if you struggle with that idea, look further. Um, that's, that's like a challenge. I just want to level, like look further into that. Look deeper. Check those questions on for yourself. Think on it. Pray on it. I'm convinced that you'll be rewarded in that. But if you are convinced in this, if we're at this place where we, we are believers in Christ, my prayer is that we would be strengthened in our faith and love for what Jesus did for us, that it would lead to greater devotion to him. He went through all of that stuff that I talked about earlier for us, for his church. There's that Isaiah 53 thing, by his wounds we are healed. And the resurrection allows us reconciliation with God and gives us life and hope. Now, I, I know I've been going for a bit. Ugh, it's almost 10 o'clock, but one last thing. I want to roll back to John 20 real fast and think about Thomas, okay? Thomas. Thomas gets such a bad rap. Doubting Thomas, the poor sap. You know, like, always Thomas. But I love Thomas so much. I'm so thankful for Thomas in this because one, he is me and I think he's a lot of us All right, if we're really honest with ourselves with this whole thing but Jesus shows up for Thomas in such a beautiful way and meets him where he is like I never read this as like Jesus just like berating Thomas like come on man like, he does call him into belief, right? But he also meets him where he's at. And he's like, listen, if you need to see my hands, here they are. If you need to see my side, if you need to touch the wound, here it is. Like, he meets Thomas where he is. And I, he meets us where we are, and he brings us into deeper places with him. So, you know, if you're struggling, remember, remember Thomas, in any way, if you're struggling, dealing with doubts, just struggling through life, like not sure, remember Thomas and remember 
the understanding that Christ has for us. I, I feel like I mentioned this a ton already this year, but there's that whole Hebrews thing that he is our great high priest who can sympathize with us in all of our weaknesses because he's the word in the flesh, the word became flesh. Remember Thomas in that. There's one final thing. At the end of the Bible, all the way at the end, Revelation 21, John, who wrote the gospel, is writing this. He's seeing this vision. He says this, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. Um, we're going to go to groups. Um, they have some questions to talk through. If you don't have one, join a friend. Um, and uh, I'm just going to let you all pray together, all right? So go ahead and head to your groups.